This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Thursday the 22nd of April 2021. And Norman, can we talk today about the risk of blood clots with coronavirus vaccines? Yes, yes, I know we've been talking about that a lot recently, but there's some more information that's come to light recently. So we've talked a lot about AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the very, very rare, but there, risk of a specific type of blood clot with those vaccines. But we heard reports in the media yesterday that a Brisbane police officer who'd received the Pfizer vaccine was hospitalised a few days later with blood clots. We don't know a lot about that. We haven't been able to verify it yet. But it also fits in with some stuff that was reported by the European Medicines Agency. So let's start off. We are in the dark as we record this corona cancer, exactly what the story is with this Queensland case. Now, if it turns out um, that this was clotting with low platelet count, then that is a worrying signal because that's very rare. And then they would have to do the antibody test on the platelets to see whether or not they've got this anti-platelet factor 4 antibody. And so we don't know yet whether this could be a vaccine-related, immune-related thrombosis problem, clotting problem. You know, And again, verifying that this policeman has had Pfizer vaccine. So there's lots to be verified about this case. However, it's not necessarily a surprise if indeed it turns out to be the case. The European Medicines Agency, in a press conference in the last couple of days, has reported some cases associated with Pfizer and Moderna. And here's what they said. If we look specifically at cases of thrombosis associated with thrombocytopenia, so clots with low platelets. Um, If we look then at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, we have eight cases worldwide, and all eight cases come from the United States, as was presented earlier. If we then look at AstraZeneca vaccine, we have 287 cases, of which 142 come from uh, the European Economic Area. For Pfizer, 25 cases, and for Moderna, five cases. So that was Peter Arlett, who's the head of data analytics at the EMA. What do we make of these cases, Norman? Because it's such a small number when you consider that hundreds of millions of doses of these mRNA vaccines have been delivered worldwide. Exactly. So the key here is the statistical term, the denominator. So it's 25, 5, let's say 30 between the two of them for mRNA vaccines of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia, clots with low platelet count. The question is, out of how many? Apart from even arguing whether or not it's more than that because they haven't reported on all the cases, which is what happened with Astra. So if the denominator is several hundred million, which is how many Pfizer and Moderna doses combined have been given, this is vanishingly rare and probably does sit under what you would expect normally for this rare condition, although nobody knows really what the true incidence of clotting with low platelets is. But it's very rare, and this is just tiny compared to all that, if they've all been reported. These are company reports, so the companies are doing the right thing. They've heard about these cases, and they've reported them to the authorities. So there's a long way to go with this to find out whether or not it rises above what you would expect, which is what happened with the um, Astra vaccine. And there's another complexity which is uh, important with this denominator population. There's two possibilities here. 
don't want to scare everybody, but there's two <laughs> possibilities here. One is that there's an artifact in the statistics because of who has received the vaccine. And in some countries with Astra, it's biased towards young people. We don't know yet whether or not it's actually more evenly spread through the age groups. It looks unlikely from the British data, but that's still possible. But let's assume that it does occur in the under 55s. Then the true denominator population is actually the under 55s. So while people quote one in 200,000 doses or one in 100,000 doses, it's actually more common than that if your only population is the under 55s. And that's where you start to get the rates that you hear from Finland and Denmark and some Scandinavian countries of 1 in 70,000, 1 in 40,000, because their denominator are people, is people under 55. So we're getting data which the authorities aren't really coming clean on or they don't know about yet. And it, it, it does colour how we think about this. And so it's possible at the moment, because goodness knows we do not want this problem with mRNA vaccines, that this is vanishingly rare, if indeed it's real at all. It's such a complicated time to be living. Like, we're watching this all play out in real time, and it's a bit scary for people. And like you say, at least the rhetoric that has happened in Australia, including on this show, there's been very much this idea that, well, if we had mRNA vaccines, we wouldn't be having this problem. When will we know whether it's a true signal or not? Well, we may not know for a while, because have they been looking for clots with low platelets in the mRNA vaccines. Everybody's focus has been on the viral vaccines. Why are we not seeing this in the United States? Why does it seem to be European? But that's what the British said when the, when the Germans started and the Norwegians started reporting these cases in Europe. The British said, oh, well, we haven't seen it. But when they started to look for it, they found it. And they found it in roughly similar numbers, maybe about half the rate of Europe. So when you look for it, you may find it. And hopefully they, they won't find it, but they've got to start looking for it. The science behind this is that it's possible that the technology which produces an antibody response to the spike protein, regardless of how it happens, creates a wobble in the immune system which cross-reacts with the platelets. And so it doesn't matter how you do that. The problem is the spike protein. And the interesting thing will be to see whether in the trials of Novavax, where they inject the spike protein directly into the body, whether they get the same problem. And ironically, the University of Queensland vaccine may not have had this problem because they specifically had a clamp to stabilize the spike protein. We'll never know the answer to that question. But this is the scientific milieu or mess or blancmange that we're in the middle of. And it's depressing and worrying, but it may turn out to be nothing at all. It's obviously really important for us to understand this from a scientific point of view and also from a safety point of view. But in a country like Australia, where we have such low levels of coronavirus, and so in a sense, time is on our side, do we run the risk of just tying ourselves in knots, looking at these very, very rare side effects when for the vast, vast majority of people, these vaccines are safe and effective and probably are key to reopening? Yeah, and that's why the regulators overseas have got to start reporting their denominator population. And I think it would make it easier for people to accept the vaccine. Because if you say, look, the denominator, this is why it's so important. If you were to say to this to Australians, look, it's actually something like one in 60,000 under the age of 50. It makes the informed consent much clearer. And then they could say, well, and over 50, 
it's actually more like one in a million because that's probably the where where it would land if you actually looked at the true risk by age group. We're sweeping generalizations at the moment across all age groups. So you might be able to zero in and say, okay, under 50, this is what your risk is, one in 50,000. You might say, oh, well, that's a bit different from one in 200,000. I'll hang on for Pfizer. But over 50, if you're vaccine hesitant and it's actually one in a million, you'd say, well, what the heck? I'm going to have it. So while we're talking about mRNA vaccines, another thing that we heard yesterday was that Victoria is going to be opening a facility to manufacture mRNA vaccines in Australia, which is something we were talking about just a few weeks ago, that it would be good for Australia to have this capacity. What what sort of timeline are we talking about with this facility? I think they're talking about 12 months. The other thing that we should just talk about from yesterday, in fact, two nights ago, was the evidence, before we get onto that, to the COVID committee at the at, in Parliament which was interviewing um, the Deputy Secretary of the Department and Secretary Brendan Murphy about why they weren't diverting Pfizer doses from aged care to younger people. And it was it, the answer was they didn't want to change the program. They didn't want to send doctors out with two different types of doses. And so rather than change the program that they've got going into aged care, they're just going to keep on doing it which was uh, mildly surprising. But let's go back to the manufacturing. Uh, the manufacturing is over the next 12 months, setting it up, getting going, and it's a Victorian initiative. And interestingly, you know, thank goodness for Victoria and Queensland, they're the two states historically over the last 15 years, in fact, Victoria much longer than that, who've really invested and put their money where their mouth is in terms of innovation, uh, institutes um, and development. And Victoria steps up to the mark again with uh, an investment in mRNA manufacturing. I mean, if we wait for some of the other jurisdictions, we'll be waiting forever. So that is not going to be up and running for a year, like you say. Hopefully we're all out of this and done and dusted and we're wiping our hands clean and walking away from coronavirus by then. Uh, the realistic part of my brain says that's probably not the case. But what else can mRNA tech be used for beyond just coronavirus max vaccine manufacture? Now that the platform is proven, there are lots of applications for mRNA. So vaccines is clearly one. And we don't know, for example, whether an mRNA vaccine for influenza would be more more effective than the, the traditional influenza vaccine if you, if you knew which part of the influenza vaccine to program for. And then therapeutics. Increasingly, we are manipulating the immune system to treat cancer. Well, could we actually do that through mRNA where you introduce the cancer antigen, in other words, what you want from the cancer to be you know, the little equivalent of the spike on a cancer cell, so not the cancer cell but the spike on it, that you would get the immune system to attack or um, a manipulation which changes the way the immune responses work, a bit like this new cancer immunotherapy. We're taking that. There's lots, there's lots of different opportunities here for mRNA technology and if we've got the platform in Australia and we're strongly building it, we could be catapulted into this new technology. Well, that's a really exciting kind of future to look forward to and a nice upbeat way to end today's Coronacast. So that's all we've got time for, but send your questions in to abc.net.au slash coronacast and mention Coronacast so we can find it. We'll see you tomorrow. See you then.